0: Movies Till Dawn continue on Channel 5 with Island of Lost Souls.
1: Welcome to Movies Till Dawn a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond Felita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. So here's part two of my conversation with the director, Randall Kleiser. If you've listened to part one, I think you've heard uh, Randall's personality come through, and it's just he's a wonderful calm and uh, genteel and smart and a very leveling presence, I always I always think of him as. And he's worked with some pretty major egos, and he's survived, and in fact, he's triumphed. Um, so it, it, he's a lovely guy to just sit and talk movies with. In this uh, part of our conversation, we talk about his 1980 uh, movie, The Blue Lagoon, starring Brooke Shields, which was controversial in its day, and I think we point out would probably be even more controversial now and probably not made in quite the same way. Um, But, hey, it was the late 70s when they did it. Uh, He also talks about specifically, and I find this a a really, really cool part of this conversation, how he was inspired to get that movie made. Um, And it shows you that the force of a director's will sometimes overcomes the inertia of uh, studio decisions. He had to jump through some scary hoops the day before the principal photography. Uh, and we talk about his relationship to the legendary cinematographer Nestor Elimandris, uh, who shot Blue Lagoon. And we talk about some other stuff that you'll hear when you listen to this conversation, but most importantly, we close with a, a long and informative talk about his film adaptation of Greece. So here's part two of my conversation with my friend and collaborator, Randall Kleiser. And remember, Greece is the word. When you, when you say you were brought in to a movie that was already advanced, was it already shooting?
0: No, I was in prep and, um, it was just, I think there were script problems and I think Chris Menzies wanted to go on and do something else. And, uh, they had this location problem, and so, you know, everything was, they just needed a replacement, so I came in. I also replaced, uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid was also one that was uh, going over budget, and uh, I was brought in to, to get it back under control. Uh, the original director wanted to have, for instance, 50 ice cream trucks leading the baby out of Vegas and I changed it to one and he had this job and he said okay you're higher Grandle. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's exactly what we want to hear <laughs> exactly there was a big labs, lab uh, set that was designed I said cut the lab set in half I'll just shoot one side you know things like that right so I, that's how I but I only did that because they pro, um a certain executive promised me that if I did that movie, he would let me do an adult film afterwards, and then he left to form another company, so I never got the payment. <laughs>
1: how, how, how did you blow up the kid? Like, I remember that scene in the car. yeah. With, with, right, and, and, and by the time the kid gets out and the mom realizes what's happening, how, how was we that done? We had a
0: guy in a suit, really, and, we had, we, uh, and then we shot a lot of stuff with miniature Rick, Rick uh, Rannis's Puppets with the real baby, and we just cut real fast back and forth so that we had either the big guy or the, or the little. I reckon by just doing a lot of cutting, we were able to.
1: Did you use uh, uh, sets to scale? Because yeah. when the kid comes into the house, I wonder, was that doorway built for That's,
0: uh, yeah We did a lot of. Um,
1: in other words, a smaller doorway for the actual kid.
0: Force perspective. Right. And what was fun about that was that it was on the same sound soundstage that Darby O'Gill was shot on and that was the one when I was a kid so I saw that and they did forced perspective in that and it was brilliant and so it was exciting to be on the same set doing the same kind of work because it, it, it's fantastic when you do it because it's all in the camera and there's no, no tricks it's just r- real and it looks real
1: it, It's interesting, there are these great techniques that work forever mm-hmm. that can still work now yeah. that are essentially sure. just defunct they're, yeah. they're not um, I was always interested in, in the one the, the, the glass shot Oh, yeah. I mean, what a painstaking thing. You would literally paint, uh, uh, it was like an early mat, basically. Yeah, yeah. You'd paint the whole set to perspective and then yeah. put the actor slotted yeah. right into the, the piece yeah, that you left worked. open for them and suddenly they were in a concert hall when they were not anywhere near a concert hall. Yeah. You just painted the concert hall.
0: And we're doing that now with digital effects, of course. Uh, you know, one of the things about special effects, they were used to be so expensive with um, when they were in opticals. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, any optical shot was $30,000, as I recall. And so we were. I was always asked to try to keep the, op, uh, the opticals down. So I hired, when I was doing Flight of the Navigator, I hired Doug Henning to come in and consult about using magic tricks to to uh, do special effects rather than opticals. Well, how did that work? Great. I mean, he came up with these, with these great ideas, one of which was... When the boy was walking up into the spaceship and the, 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 the uh, steps were floating, mm-hmm. um, we we had steel rods going back away from the camera to the ground and underneath it using a stage trick. And so it worked really well because when the boy stepped on the, on the thing, it sort of gave a little and he would walk up to the next thing. We did a dolly with that. And that was um, something that would not have worked with an optical. It would have had to be frozen off. So that and he was helping us with some of the levitation stuff and you know it was, it was cool to hear his tricks
1: and did you work with your brother on that too yes uh, my brother
0: came up with the whole idea of the changing shape of the spaceship he had shown me a tide commercial where the tide bottle changed shape and i said can we adapt that to a spaceship and, and also uh, there was this whole thing in a special effects book about the future of Special Effects was going to be image-based lighting where you take an image and you can wrap that onto a, a CGI model and have it look like it's like it's a mirror. And that we added that to the spaceship, too. Did your
1: brother get his interest in this from you?
0: I think so, yeah. He was in my film, What the Cats Away? He was one of was on the... <laughs> and actually, I used him in Blue Lagoon, too. He was up on the mast at the very end. He says... Uh, Two points to port, sir. Looks to be a small craft. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Blue Lagoon. Uh, it, it, the, your your version is the third. I didn't. I is looked it? it up. There was a silent Blue Lagoon.
0: Oh, I didn't see that.
1: Did I you ever? See, when no. you were? And I know that this was a project that I, you initiated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Was, you, was it the book or the English the book. version that that you liked?
0: I saw the book. I loved it. I. I got it all going, and it wasn't until I actually got it launched—I mean, the uh, got it um, uh, financed—that I saw that there was another movie. I didn't know that, mm-hmm. and I looked at that and saw that it was shot pretty much in sound stages in England, and um, uh, they did some location shooting in Fiji. And when I was looking for a place to shoot, I wanted to go back to that island and shoot on the same island, and we did.
1: Blue Lagoon. I'm I'm interested in talking to you about uh, Nestor Almendros. Oh yeah. I mean, you worked with probably one of the great on the on the short list, one of the greatest DPs ever. How how comfortable? How scary? How did you select him? I mean, it's I would I would feel such a mixture of awe and no uh, awe.
0: It was all joy because uh, he. I I was about to give up on Blue Lagoon because nobody would finance it, and then I saw Days of Heaven in 70 millimeter at, at MGM. And I thought, this is a sign. <laughs> I have to find this young cameraman and and uh, and go full full out to get Blue Lagoon off the ground. And I found out he wasn't young, and he was uh, <laughs> Truffaut's cameraman. And I I tracked him down in New York, and I went to see him, and uh, told him about it. And uh, he, he he passed away young, Mr. Olivier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't remember how many years ago, but. Uh, I was so excited to be in his book, A Man and a Camera, where he had a chapter on each movie he did and the artist that he was emulating, the, the look of the artist. Each movie, he selected an artist that he would try to make a film of. And, and Blue Lagoon, he chose Paul Gauguin Ga because of all the s- stuff from the South Pacific. But the reason, the way, the way I got Nestor was um, I saw it Days of Heaven at MGM, and I and I decided definitely I have to find this guy and have him do it. And I tracked him down, and he was sort of interested, but he wasn't sure. So he brought Barbe Schroeder to my house to interview me, the two of them, and and say why do you want to do this movie? What what does it mean to you? And all that. So I told him how passionate I was about making this film because I loved the book and I wanted to see if there was a way to make it for the you know, the modern version of it. Um, And Barbet sort of said, okay, he's cool, you can do it.
1: Why did he need Barbet Schroeder? He
0: had worked with Barbet uh, on several projects, Coco, The Talking Gorilla, and and maybe something else. And he trusted Barbet's uh, opinion about whether this was a good move for him because he had never really done like a real commercial kind of project. He would only done sort of more artistic ones. And he wasn't sure if this was a good move to make or not, so he wanted to take Barbet and ask him his opinion.
1: And I imagine, it be knowing that it was your passion project, must have spoken a lot to for that. I think that was that. what did it, yeah. 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 It wasn't just, a
0: hey, I want to I go and hang out on the beach. No, <laughs> it was uh, uh, something I tried to get off the ground for many years. And, uh, so it was, it was cool that he said yes. But the funny thing was that Nestor was like... Um, Mr. Magoo. He had very thick glasses. He could, you know, and he was always kind of like a child, childlike in his perception of everything. He would, he would, uh, if, he, if he was talking to you and he saw something, he would get down at his knees and examine it very closely with his thick glasses. Or or when he met people, he would go up and stare at them and look at their faces. <laughs> very un... un um, uh, abashed, you know, just examining people, you know, very ch- childlike. And when we were on the island, which was, you know, very rugged, um, he wore these Italian beautiful loafers, slopping through mud and stuff. And he, he just unaware of so much, you know. He was just like in his little dream world of images, and uh, just great to work with.
1: How much of a crew did he did he use? We had
0: about 40 people living on the island. Um, in tents we all lived in tents and uh, or, or some of them were in, on a boat that was anchored off the lagoon and uh, yeah it was all Australian crew it was an all Australian crew
1: Was it was it cheaper to work there or was it a yeah. was it a big budget
0: No I think the whole movie was four million dollars but um, the 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 uh, The whole movie was, the budget was four million dollars, and I wanted to use an Australian crew because they were more rugged, and I knew that we were gonna be shooting in rugged conditions, so when I interviewed the crew, I asked them if they ever went camping, and if they said yes, then they got the role, (laughs) the part.
1: Was that part of the excitement of making the film to you, because you hadn't really worked in any kind of circumstance like that until then? Yeah, To to have an adventure making a film while making an adventure movie, right? It was
0: absolutely true, yes. Uh, we could have done it in, like, Hawaii and stayed in hotels and stuff like that, but something about going to that place where the first movie was made and, and having you know, camping out to do it, it, it all came together. And plus, because of the way Nestor worked, you know, he, he loved, loved, loved working on Our Blue Lagoon because we would wake up in the morning and we would look at the sky and the light and we decide what we were going to shoot. There was no schedule. We just looked through and said, "Hey, this this would work because of those things," and so, which you can never do. But we only had two actors, and everybody was there, so we could decide in the morning what we wanted to shoot depending on the weather and the light.
1: It sounds a little like directing a documentary if you're if you're out and around, you decide what to shoot with who, and yeah.
0: He had done a lot of documentaries, so yeah, I think that was part of it. Yeah. Was he his own operator? Yes. Yes, and. Um, and, and the next movie I did after that, I wanted to do the same thing, and I, I didn't have the right guy to do it, and, and it didn't work out because uh, Nestor was so great at operating.
1: When a when a DP is is their own operator, I find the um, the whole. Um communication more seamless mm-hmm. and uh, we're, we're both kind of making a movie together as opposed right. to being the hierarchy of okay like, here's know. the operator I should go talk to the DP he's over by the uh, uh, the monitor it's it, it, the it, lighting uh, cameraman in England they call him yeah that.
0: yeah yeah uh, no it's really great it was I felt like it was back in film school with, with Nestor because we were just like buddies making a movie rather than you know a crew and everybody was there to they were so excited to be working with him. That, and me, because I'd just done Greece, and so uh, you know the Australians were seeing this as an, uh, their first opportunity to do an international or Hollywood type back-to-movie. So it was everybody was really cooperative and excited.
1: When when you say that having seen uh, uh, Days of Heaven, you were inspired to finally like be mm-hmm. able to put the, together the financing for this. So what turned then uh, to get the financing? Was it your own determination that sort of shifted I think so. the, yeah. the wind somehow? What, I think, how does that come I'd, together? I'd gone
0: to so many people and they'd all said, nobody wants to see a movie with two, just two people and, you know, it's not going to work. And, and uh, then uh, I went back to Frank Price, who had originally hired me to, after seeing Page to do that Marcus Welby at Universal. And I went back and, and said, Hey, I really want to make this movie. And Frank and Frank took a look at it and said, Good, let's do it. And I went, What? <laughs> Why didn't I go to you at the beginning? So, yeah, he, he totally left us alone. Um, and when we had uh, casting problems, because we had Billy Ames and Diane Lane ready to shoot, and uh, Friday and Monday we were supposed to start shooting, and they both backed out because of the nudity. They didn't want to do nudity. So we had a recast over the weekend. I called Frank and said, "What are we going to do?" And he said, uh, "I have faith in you. I know that when the cameras roll on Monday, there will be two people in front of them." <laughs> <laughs> that was really cool to hear. He's totally calm, you know. And I was freaked out. Well, what now? That
1: that doesn't that, that doesn't make full sense to me. Though, why would it take them until a few days before the film to decide that the, they were uncomfortable with the nudity?
0: Thinking about it, maybe. You know. it, like it was finally a reality. <laughs> yes, really. A wooden ship a fire at sea, Up you go. Yeah. and two young children are cast adrift. Fortune washes them ashore on a fertile isle. But fate deserts them, and they are left utterly alone. The years passed, but no ship ever did. Yet the boy and the girl grew strong and tall and beautiful, raising themselves on instinct in the bounty of their lost paradise. But this was no Eden. Richard!
1: M. Em, where are you? The Blue Lagoon. Well, that's an interesting uh, um, topic to explore a little, because I don't know that in the world of 1980, I guess that is, mm-hmm. uh, as a, and, and the world of 2019, uh, could you make that same movie?
0: Well, no. With I, a girl
1: under the age of 18? No,
0: you couldn't. I think they made a new rule after that movie. Yeah. That you couldn't have a simulated sex with anyone under 18. The other problem today is that now they have, what do they call them? Um, sensuality co- consultants or something. Do you know what that I'm talking about? No. They have, they have for sex scenes, they now have, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's somebody who comes in to work with the actors on uh, the choreography of naked scene naked love scenes and it's there 's a title for it i don 't remember what it was, but it, it just feels like it 's be right in the middle of what you 're trying to do. The it,
1: only uh, uh, sex scenes that I find bearable usually are are funny ones yeah so there's really no sensuality you 're talking about yeah. there necessarily yeah, yeah. but uh, but of course you 're doing a whole other thing in blue lagoon yeah. and and
0: um, what's well, discovering it all which, yeah which is yeah. What, but it's, supposed to be about but yeah it couldn't do that today no
1: how so how did you wind up getting Brooke Shields and
0: well Brooke was always my first choice but she was so tall and and Willie Ames was so short so I knew I couldn't do it so I, I immediately I had talked to her about doing it but but we just didn't have a leading man so immediately hired her uh over the phone and then I had to find a a tall leading man so I went to New York and uh, got my brother and his friends. I said, we have to go to Central Park and go from all directions and pull any tall blonde boys to Columbus Circle uh, in an hour and do screen tests. (laughs) And it was Puerto Rican day, so there were no tall blonde boys. (laughs) So the next step was to go back through all the old tapes and then we found Chris Atkins who had like a -a Pompadour and we said, what if we took his hair and frizzed it so he looked not so so so, uh, so modern? And that's how we ended up doing it. And then we, we flew him to uh, Fiji on Monday, and he was going. <laughs> he was the lead in a in a in a Columbia feature, uh, and he was a sailing instructor. He had never acted before.
1: I now I seem to remember you telling me something about Tom Cruise in conjunction.
0: Mm, no, Tom was... Uh, uh, Grandview, USA, I, I met with him on that.
1: Because I think you were talking about a T-shirt that you wanted to have or you had that said, I passed on Tom Cruise. <laughs>
0: oh, yes. Oh, boy, yeah. Well, it, it was, you know, he... I remember that day, there was an article in the LA Times about Sean Penn wanting to be called by his, his uh, character's name. Or else he wouldn't show up, or he wouldn't do anything. And I, I mentioned that to Tom. He says I respect that, and I thought, hmm, trouble ahead. So yeah, I, I could see that he was of that that ilk of the sort of methody type actor, and I thought maybe that would be difficult to deal with.
1: You know, all all directors have to deal with actors of all yeah. stripes, oh, sure. and, and and I noticed a lot of the time that directors don't. Necessarily know each other much but they will call each other to say right. have you worked with this one what, what are they, they like what are How he or she do like yeah. of course do, yeah. do you check every, every actor oh, out like yeah. that yeah it's
0: great to know that because you, when you're on a set and you have somebody who comes from soap operas where they do it once or somebody who doesn't like to rehearse and others that are from the theater and want to have months of rehearsal and you end up on the same stage with those people you have to know who does what so you don't you know make them crazy do you
1: feel like you've dodged a a few bullets yeah
0: I think so I mean um, you have to know who is is, uh, needs rehearsal and who doesn't who hates rehearsal I mean I remember I was an extra in a movie called Von Rinds Express with Frank Sinatra starring and
1: he would barely do a take much less a rehearsal (laughs) right he was famous for only wanting to do one take
0: and it was 5 o'clock and Mark Mark Robeson uh, had just done a take with frank and he said frank come on it's it's, it's like we got to get one more and he says it's five o'clock and he went and got into a helicopter and flew away from the set <laughs> so yeah i think he, he knew that he was only good on the first take some actors know that because after that it's fake
1: it's interesting um, and so in a sense you kind of have to respect that well, yeah, because yeah, you're not going to get good work if they're if they're insecure about it. The nightmare comes when you have him and an actor who doesn't warm up until take five or six or seven. So.
0: Exactly. You have to know also who to shoot first and who to shoot last. You know, Some people are great in the beginning, like Frank Sinatra. You want to do his close-up first, and you want to do an actor like you're talking about in a master shot uh, and do theirs take, his close-up last. Yeah. If you know that, you can sort of schedule it that way.
1: What, what are you what are you more relieved to hear that they that, that people like rehearsal or that they'd rather just jump in and go what do you like what, what's your process like um
0: I, I like rehearsal because I like to see what you're going to get otherwise you're like oh <laughs> it's, you're on the set and you get something you you know you might want to change it but it's if they're that type of person who wants to be so improvised then maybe they don't want to do it again so yeah I'd much rather do rehearsals and hear it and tell... Ta- and work on it and get, get the right moments to work
1: do you, do, you, do you build that into your schedule do you, do you bring actors in a week before usually
0: or? usually that usually they have to do it on the weekends on the actor's own time haven't you found, found that yeah but I don't find that they're ever reluctant to do it no they like doing it but you can never get anyone to pay for it right they just know that the director and the actors will work it out on their own on their own time that's a trick that the producers know that, that they really want to do that
1: yeah Have you had good relations with most of your producers?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonathan uh, Jonathan Sanger in particular is a really wonderful producer to work with. Um, And uh, most of them have been very supportive. Um, Yeah, even when there's big problems, you know, they're usually there for you.
1: Like what kind of big problems?
0: Well, um, on White Fang we had Klaus Maria Brandauer who's difficult to deal with. I was going to ask you about Klaus Maria (laughs) Brand ever. Yeah, he was, he was hard to deal with. Uh, He just, he would play games and stuff. Like what? Well, you know, he would say that, well, all kinds of things, but the thing was, he knew that the studio had hired him and not not me. The studio wanted him uh, because of his name and um, so I was, he knew that and so he knew he had power you know, he knew that he could, uh, he thought he could do whatever he wanted. So I'd have to sort of manipulate him a little bit by, you know, asking him to do it one way and then he would, he would resist and tell you he couldn't do it and I'd have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and finally he'd do it right, but, but he would just always resist, you know, just to bug me, really. It was purely torture. Had depressing. <laughs> yes. I mean a perfect example is the first day we were sh- night we were shooting is 40 degrees below zero and we we're at uh, in the in the woods with wolves and stuff and and uh, around the campfire and uh, he um, we were we were in the trailer going through all the blocking and, and everything and everything was fine and then we went out to the to the in front of the crew uh, and started to block and I said so Klaus on that line you, you move from here to here and say, why would i do that that's a dumb idea you know when we'd already just discussed it you know yeah. things like that embarrassing me in front of the crew
1: I, I wanted to ask you about it's my party yeah uh, it, it's, it's it's your it's your indie film yes you know you, you you've worked on such big scale uh, even uh, but even though you have have been able to make films like blue lagoon which are not standard big scale movies they're very beautiful and very intimate But can you tell me what inspired it? Can you talk about that? Yeah,
0: um, it was uh, an event that happened um, in my life that was uh, this uh, relationship I had with this uh, artist who was very, very adamant that he wasn't going to give in to the devastation that we were seeing among all our friends who would slowly decay in front of our eyes of AIDS. And um, there was a particular disease multifocal encephalopathy that uh if you get it 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 turns you into a vegetable within a matter of days and he knew there were signs that he might have had that and he he said if that happens i'm going to i'm going to off myself and uh and i'm gonna have a big party and say goodbye to everybody and he did and so everybody who went to that party uh it was it was Surreal kind of thing because it was like a big birthday party, a big celebration. But everyone knew at the party that at the end he was going to be gone. And he wanted everyone to have a good time and he hated any kind of crying or any kind of stuff. So it was this very strange uh, event to be at because everyone was uh, laughing and joyous and then when he'd walk away everyone would fall apart, you know. So Mm. it was (laughs) really... it's something we all are etched in everybody's memory who was there and I went and interviewed everybody who was at the party about the moments that they had with him alone and um, I wrote about pretty much everything that that happened so the whole thing is very very accurate to what happened except that I I cast my character as more of a villain because I needed to have a a, a villain and um, I couldn't make it him (laughs) So I, 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 I amped up the drama a bit. It wasn't quite like that. We had, we had resolved any issues way ahead of that, but I made it all happen at the party.
1: For the last two years, Nick Stark has lived his life Is it me? his own way. Nick, you're talking things, you're forgetting things. Do the scan.
0: But some things are too great to face alone.
1: I can't believe you're sick. Who oh, no. knows?
0: You see my headshot? There's a lesion here and here. They're advanced. I have 10 days till I croak, right? Now, he's going to do the only logical thing. You know what I always said I'd do if I got this? He's going to have the party of his life. Babe, you know me. I never missed an opening.
1: Everyone he knows will be there.
0: This is my party. His family. Lighten up, Aunt Fanny. I'm operating on a single T cell. How come everybody's acting so normal? Eh? That's what Nick wants. His friends. This is for you. It's Macaulay Culkin throwing up a slow shell crab. How quickly was that film made? That film, it, it was. You mean how many days? Yeah. I think it must have been about maybe th- 20, 30 days, something like that. Something, but, yeah. but Considerably
1: uh, less than you usually. Yeah. Work with, and, yeah.
0: um,. The, the interesting part about it was that i that was the one that I had taken to Disney because <laughs> they said I could do a drama. And they looked and look, took one look at it and said, uh, not this one. So I, luckily my agent, Jim Wyatt, sent me to John Callie who had just taken over United Artists and was looking to have something to start with. And he I went into his office. I showed him photographs of the real party and I told him the story. And I said, here's what the hero is. And, and uh, I got in my car, and I drove away. And as I was leaving the uh, MGM, the phone rang, and it was, it was um, Jim Wyatt, and he said he wants to make it. I hmm. couldn't believe it. Right from the, from the office, you know? How great. And I got a green light. That was the only time that ever happened. And then he, uh, he, he asked me to work with Carrie Fisher on the script, and I, I talked to Carrie, and she... Um, was busy, but she liked it. So I ended up, I forget who we got to help me polish it, but uh, it was pretty much a lot of research on the people that were there.
1: How long after the real events uh, did it Gee, take?
0: Uh, about three or four years, maybe, oh. I think. It was something that I felt I had to do, even if I did it on regular eight. <laughs> With the same equipment you grew up working, <laughs> yes. you still have that stuff? I do, I do. No, or video, I thought maybe I'd shoot it on video if I needed to, because it's something I had to get out of my system.
1: Was it in a sense a kind of
0: therapy? Absolutely, it was. It was very expensive therapy. <laughs> and uh, But it, it turned out very satisfying, and uh, yeah, that was probably one of the more big moments of my life. The, the, the event and then the movie were the two things that... It's so deep and heavy.
1: Do you find the entire act of creating a film an emotional one?
0: Um, some of them, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think Honey, I Blew Up the Kid was emotional, but it was technically fun. But that you also
1: go through a, a tremendous amount of growth one way or the other. You're going to learn things making a film. You're going to the come dynamics. into contact with people. Yeah,
0: Yeah, the dynamics of dealing with uh, pe- people who are trying to get you to something you don't want to do, you know. Trying to manipulate your way through performances and studio executives and and ideas that you don't agree with and, and you know trying to push a uh, vision through that's any director goes through that to get your vision there you have to just you know with your city man man
1: it's funny because as we were, we were talking about earlier there, there are some people there's some directors who are one and out they yeah. do it once. Mm-hmm. They tend to either be an actor or a writer who wants to try directing, and right. they they run for the hills. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> uh, but every director who does the work, you know, more and more, uh, it doesn't get easier, and yet we keep coming back for, for more of the, the same pain somehow. Yeah. What what is that?
0: Well, there's there's more joy than pain, I think. Um, you know, and when you look back, usually you don't remember the pain as much as the joy. I don't. I mean, well, some sometimes i do but it's so much fun because well orson well said that the movie studio is the biggest train set a boy could ever have and in a way that's that's kind of true because you're 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 making dreams that other people will see for years and years you know you're taking something in your mind and making it into other people's minds like like telepathy in a way
1: the the, the um, opposite end of that quote the Wells quote is uh, Joseph von Sternberg said the most complicated invention created by man is the motion picture
0: and Francois Truffaut said making movies like going through a stagecoach trip in the west at first you hope for a pleasant trip and at the end you hope you'll get there
1: <laughs> <laughs> I should be satisfied with that <laughs> Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Greece.
0: The Broadway smash that made theatrical history by becoming one of the longest running musical comedies of all time breaks loose on the motion picture screen.
1: I just want to finish, because I saved it for last, um, I, I, I want to finish with Greece. Hmm. Which I'm sure you're talked to death about, but uh, you you did you did some, you know it's your fault you made one of the most successful musicals in the history of cinema, uh, so you know you're, you're stuck with it. You have a beautiful book that I can't wait to to, to yeah, read. Yeah,
0: the book is, is I've spent about a year doing it. I'd saved everything because I just
1: so it's a grease scrapbook of yeah, all of your directing
0: directing materials. It's yeah, my, my personal scrapbook with all my notes and my storyboards and my. Uh, and then I also got the from the Academy all the, uh, the, the costume designs and the production designs, and, uh, and I interviewed all the cast about what it was like for them. So, yeah, it's it's I figured that, mm, why not? And John and Olivia are going to be doing sing-alongs down in Florida, for the first time, the two of them. So I'm thinking about going down to that. It's the final countdown. <laughs> Gr- this Greece still
1: appeals to to. Kids, it's amazing. forty some years later. Yeah, uh, kid, kid, uh, kids who went to school with my son a few years ago, like their favorite movie is Greece. They're going to watch Greece again. They're going it, to. It, it's it.
0: what's what amazes me is that it works in different cultures too. You know, uh, all over the world, people know about it, and to all ages and all cultures, it's it's very it's quite a phenomenon. And uh, when we did it, we had no idea that that, that would happen at all. And uh, of course, we're thrilled, but it it. The most exciting part for me was standing on the stage of the Hollywood Bowl with 17,000 people dressed in the costumes from Greece, (laughs) all singing along with it, and that was pretty fun.
1: Wow. (laughs) How how did it come to you? You'd never directed a musical. You'd never directed a big studio movie. I
0: I directed John and Boy in the Plastic Bubble, and he got a three-picture deal at Paramount, and he wanted to work with me again. So it was because of John, really. Hmm. And... uh, the casting director was Joel Thurm, who had produced Boy in the Plastic Bubble and had, had casted the, the Gathering and had worked on my film, Peej. So, so it was a perfect storm. Yeah, everything opinion, sort of, of came together, you know. And Alan Carr had been uh, had all these parties, and I had gone to a lot of those type of parties and knew him. And the other thing was, Robert Stigwood had produced uh, my first TV movie. So the, all these peop- things came together at once. And I lucked out.
1: How, how daunting was that to take on such a big... It was
0: just exciting. It was, yeah. I didn't find it daunting because uh, we went to Chicago and saw the play and I saw things that I thought were great and things that I thought I didn't know how to make it work. And then we all worked together to shift things around and, and add uh, new songs uh, and, and it just miraculously all came together.
1: Patricia Birch... Who did the choreography for the yes. for the Broadway musical? Did it too? How did how did that work out? How did you
0: fantastic? Because she knew where all the laughs were, where all, where all the choreography was that worked, and uh, had a lot of energy. It was her first movie, and my first movie. So we were like uh, kids in a candy store, and and she was like my partner. She I relied on her for everything because uh, I had never done a musical, and she had been she was the original. Uh, uh, in West Side Story on Broadway, she was the original little, what was the name of that character that, that ran around, the, the, the tomboy? Yeah. So she had been around Broadway musicals all her life and had choreographed and been part of the original uh, project on, on, on Broadway. The original director did a wonderful job, uh, and a lot of the stuff that he came up with I used, like the scene in the drive-in when, when he slams the door on, on she slams the door on his uh, his engorged member <laughs> that was a, a joke from the Broadway play, and, you know, stuff like that we used, and Pat knew all those beats about what worked and what didn't so when we were doing it, rehearsing she would let me know, you know oh, this this should work and, and we also the script that was given to us um, the, the writers of the screenplay had tried to beef it up and add lots and lots of jokes and the interesting thing about this book that I have is that you can see them all and see them all crossed out the ones that didn't work and we used uh, most of the stuff from the play this
1: is 1977 I guess is probably when you shot it is this pre-video
0: assist? as I recall yes
1: because I somehow feel like and I've never directed a musical but I somehow feel like doing that shooting a a number and not being able to see it back would be quite I think we didn't have video assist.
0: I don't recall. I think I would remember that. Yeah, I think we. I know we had somebody standing by the camera watching for lip sync. They were just watching lips to see if they were in sync to the, to the thing.
1: So it's, it's pretty old school. It's kind of the way they were making musicals yeah, for years it was. up to. It was yeah, very
0: much like an old school musical, and it even has a feel of it. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up watching all those old movies, so. Um, it was n- nothing cutting edge about it. It was like trying try to make a classic old-time Hollywood mu- musical. I got a surprise for you. Oh, yeah?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sandy! Danny? What, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going back to Australia. We had a change of plans. Well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is, is—rocking and rollin' and whatnot. Denny? <laughs> that's my name. Don't wear it out. What's the matter with you? <laughs> What's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What happened to the Denny Zico I met at the beach? <laughs> well, I do not know. I mean, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe there's two of us, right? <laughs> why, why, why don't you take out a missing persons ad, or, or, or try the Yellow Pages? I don't know. <laughs> You're a fake and a phony, and I wish I'd never laid eyes on you. Whoa! Whoa! I wonder if she, she carries bright. silver bullets. <laughs> yeah. I realized watching, um, I think, it, I think, it, uh, "Singing in the Rain" or "Bandwagon" was on recently, and I realized, well, so not only, not only were they just um, dancing to a piano track, click track, but the Technicolor wasn't going to be. You know, what? The, they weren't going to see it in Technicolor until the end. The, the dailies were in black and white. Right, right, and technicolor right. had to be done in the lab uh-huh. later. So when you're making a musical and you're not hearing the orchestrations and you're not even seeing it in color, right. I, I imagine, A, it must be kind of terrifying to know, like, just trusting the system is going to work, but then probably exhilarating when they oh, finally got absolutely. that first print back and put the orchestrations oh, on. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh, each step of the way, it's more and more exciting. But, you know, I had an a, a amazing um, th- sort of um, epiphany, or I guess, I don't know. I was at the Hollywood Bowl watching, um, singing, not not singing, American in Paris projected, and then live music from the thing. And what what got me was... I guess I guess because in those days they had the, the the dialogue track and the music track were separate on the on the, the thing, so it was possible to do this. Because nowadays, I think you know you don't you don't have them so exactly separated. Anyhow, Gene Kelly is tap dancing in 1955, and the orchestra is playing in 2019 in total sync, and it all came together and it was just amazing to think that that artistry and that artistry were coming together and creating this this homogenization that was exactly on time. I just was blown away by that.
1: There's a, there's a Jerome Robbins ballet that I I remember seeing at uh, at New York State. Uh, It's, he uses the film of Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth dancing to I'm Old Fashioned" by Uh Jerome Kern Uh which was, I guess it's from You Were Never Lovelier. Uh, And then another dancer another dancing couple on stage does the same, same dance. dance so you're watching oh, yeah. essentially like real people and then a magnified yeah uh, great. yeah it's the same kind of idea oh. that yeah
0: and some people have taken all those dance songs from the past and cut them to another song and it looks like it's all, you know, they're all dancing to the same song. That's fun too.
1: Right, right. There's also a whole uh, genre of YouTube videos where they take a completely inappropriate song and put it against another piece of film. But they work together. Uh Um,
0: Uh And uh, and about Greece, there's been hundreds of of, uh, exact replicas of all the numbers from Greece on YouTube where people have gotten together and done stuff. One, One of which was the Swiss... The Swedish Army did Greece lightning with a big tank, and they did every <laughs> shot exactly the way it was. i got to look that up. But they were over in Afghanistan doing this. I guess they had a lot of time on their hands. They, they reproduced it exactly.
1: <laughs> That's an interesting military maneuver. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When did you know that Greece was going to become the juggernaut? Uh, did you have any any Probably. inclination before it came out? Was it tested no. with audiences, or?
0: Well, we, we we went to Hawaii and had the preview, and they, uh, they loved it. But uh, no, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to be a hit until that summer when, everywhere I was draw when I was driving my car, I turned the radio on. And all the songs were on the radio. Every, you kept changing the channel; it was on the same thing. But when I knew it was going to be gigantic, uh, you know, forever it was when we went to, uh, I think in 97 or something, I, I went with those, at the Beverly Cinema, they were having a midnight showing of it. And I took Didi Khan and Olivia to it, just to see what the audience was like. And we sat in the back, and they were going crazy over it, and we thought, whoa, this old movie? And then we, we waited till everyone went out, and they had their hats on and stuff, so that we could, uh, you know, slip out. We came out and the whole audience was on the street in Beverly singing We Go Together. So then I thought, this movie seems to last. And then, you know, we talked about doing a 20th anniversary and then, then at the 20th anniversary it was clear that people still liked it.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: And the 40th, same thing.
1: I was going to say, yeah, that's 20 years ago. And yeah. We
0: just, we just did the 40th last year at the Academy. They were storming the places. And I'm sure that this, these dates in December down in Florida are going to be a mob scene because John and Olivia for the first time will be with the movie singing along. Yeah. So that's going to be quite an event. Cool. This has been great, Randall. Well, thank you for uh, thinking of me. I'm I'm thrilled to uh, have this moment after we did our movie in the, when was it, 2000-something? Earlier. Earlier? Yeah. Really.
1: Yeah. I still get checks.
0: Yeah, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you one
1: of mine if you want. (laughs) That's the end of part two of my conversation with Randall Kleiser. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here.